morning, we are going to be looking at Mark's gospel. So if you want to turn to the first chapter of Mark, we're going to look at the first 14 or 15 verses. Uh, that's what I have planned. We'll see what time allows for. <clears throat> so Mark's gospel is probably the first gospel written. It is commonly believed that Mark's gospel serves as a template for Matthew and Luke. Now, Mark doesn't have a whole lot of details in his opening verses. He doesn't have a genealogy. He doesn't tell us that he's recording a history. And like John, he doesn't take us back to the beginning. Or does he? We'll find out. We'll find out what it is that Mark has on his mind. So listen as I read from God's Word. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed in camel hair and wore a leather belt around his waist. He ate locust and wild honey, and he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice from heaven you are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. This is the word of the Lord. Lord, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. May your spirit give us ears to hear this morning and hearts hungry for your word. I ask that you would grant me clarity of speech and clarity of thought this morning, and that these words, these words of yours, would cause our hearts to burn for you, cause our hearts to come to desire, to come to the full knowledge of Christ our Savior. Amen. So, I'm going to move this a little bit so I don't trip on it. I probably won't, but it makes me nervous. Anybody like to put together jigsaw puzzles? Not me. <laughs> it's helpful when we put the puzzle together to have the box in front of us, isn't it? We kind of need that picture, don't we? Not impossible to put together without the picture, but the picture sure helps. I told you I am not a, I'm not a puzzle person, but somebody in my house is, and that would be my lovely wife, Barbara. 
I'm amazed that she can spread all these little tiny pieces out on the table and how quickly it begins to come together and form a pitcher. Now, I might occasionally pass by on my way to the refrigerator or something, look over her shoulder and say, oh, that piece goes there. But I'm not staying long. I just, it's just not my thing. So within two minutes, I'm, I'm off to something else, probably the refrigerator or out, outside on the lanai. Now, when we were small children, our parents gave us really simple puzzles to play with, didn't they? Remember the put the round piece in the round hole, put the square piece in the square hole, put the triangle in the triangle? And we mastered those pretty, pretty easily. Well, then our parents would give us more complex puzzles. And the reason they do that is to help us with our physical coordination, our hand-eye coordination, but also to help our minds to develop reasoning, reasoning abilities and, and to develop our thinking process. What about literature? What about The Dark Night of the Soul? Or Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress? Or what about Dante's Divine Comedy? I wonder if you've read any of those. I wonder if you've struggled to read those. I have. <laughs> I, don't, I don't make any bones about it. I've struggled to read them. Dante was a 14th century writer, uh, and he wrote this wonderful poem called The Divine Comedy. He writes it in three parts. Part one is titled Inferno. That's probably the term most of you have heard of before, Dante's Inferno. And part two is titled Purgatorio. Remember, 14th century, Roman Catholic Church is pretty, pretty heavily influencing the world at that time. And part three is titled Paradiso. And like Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, Dante's poem is an allegory. It, it, it represents something with something else. Pilgrim's Progress is representing Christian's journey. And Dante's Divine Comedy is representing his journey. And early in part one, we find that Dante finds himself as being lost in the woods because he strayed from the way. Now, if you've attempted to read Dante and you've struggled with it, what does it mean? What's it about? Maybe you picked up a clue when you read Strayed from the Way, or maybe when you just heard me say it, Strayed from the Way, or maybe it just went right past you. That's possible too. But that phrase, Strayed from the Way, is a literary key that the writer provides for us. And the way should immediately, for Christians, conjure up, mm, I don't know, maybe Jesus' Sermon on the Mount where he describes the way as narrow. So there's a clue in Dante's phrase, but the real key to interpreting Dante is found in a letter that Dante writes to one of his benefactors in which he discusses the absolute significance of Israel's exodus in relation to the Christian life. The exodus is the key to understanding Dante's work. 
The exodus is the key to understanding Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. I wonder if sometimes the Bible doesn't seem like a giant puzzle to us. A puzzle without a box in front of us. A puzzle without a picture to be able to put it together. Particularly the Old Testament. I don't know, does anybody here struggle with the Old Testament? We've been told it's all about Jesus. And we agree with that. But have we figured it out? Or do we just nod in agreement when the pastor says, you know, this is a picture of Jesus right here. Yeah, you're right, pastor, it is. Because he's the pastor and he's right. But maybe we really haven't figured it out. Well, Jesus is indeed the central character of the entire body of Scripture. But there are major significant themes that flow from the beginning of Scripture to the end of Scripture. And these themes always surround Christ. They surround God and his plan of redemption in some way, form, or fashion. And when we can start to see these themes and pick out these themes, these are the keys. This is the picture of the puzzle we're trying to put together. Finding these themes and understanding these themes and being able to see them all the way through. Now, you've probably heard of the term types and shadows before. Oh, yeah, the types and shadows, they they point to Jesus. And they do. And they're typically, types and shadows are typically classified as individuals or characters within the biblical story that somehow point us to Jesus. It's not types and shadows that we're so interested in this morning, although there will be one type and shadow that we'll look at, but he doesn't point us to Jesus. He points us to Satan. We're more focused this morning on themes. And as we look at this Gospel of Mark, I know you've got to be saying, I don't know how you're going to show me an Old Testament theme from the New Testament, but that, that is my goal this morning. So, as Mark begins, he tells us the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. This is essentially Mark telling us what he's writing about. No genealogy, no history, nothing. This is what I'm writing about. And in verse 2, he says, As it is written in the prophet Isaiah, Behold, I send a messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Make ready the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. Mark tells us, I'm quoting from Isaiah. Right here in the beginning. And he's quoting from Isaiah 40, uh, chapter 40, verse 3. Let me read that for you. A voice cries, in the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. So immediately, the very beginning of Mark's gospel, he is invoking the Old Testament. He is bringing us. He is providing us his thesis. So when we read this, we say, oh, we're going to learn something about the Old Testament today from a New Testament author. It's a significant key for us in understanding what Mark is writing about. And the passages that he... Now, now Mark does something here. He tells us he's quoting from Isaiah, but he's actually combining verses from three different books. 
but he cites, he cites Isaiah, and that's a very common literary feature of Mark's day, so don't, don't let that um, send you down a rabbit trail. Don't let it take me down a rabbit trail. So these quotes that he begins with are designed to make his original audience think of something very specific. He is calling on their memory. To use a modern-day analogy, what is today? It's Independence Day. It's the 4th of July. If today was not the 4th of July, and I stood up here and read to you these words, and the rocket's red glare, the bombs bursting in air, would you know what I was talking about? Absolutely. You would know immediately, within just a few words, what Mike is talking about. And if you know your history, then your mind is drawn back to that. Oh, yeah, Independence Day. The day a nation was born. The day a free nation was born at the hand of God. That's what Mark is doing here. He is invoking some imagery. Now, is Isaiah the only place where we see this? This idea of sending a messenger? No, I've told you. Uh, it's going to come from some other places. It is also coming from the book of Exodus, and it is coming from the book of Malachi. Uh, let's, let's take a look at the Exodus passage. Uh, Exodus chapter 23, it says, Behold, I'm going to send an angel before you to guard you along the way and bring you to the place which I have prepared for you. So God tells Israel that all of this is occurring as they're about to go into the promised land. And he tells him, I'm going to send a messenger ahead of you who is going to prepare the way. They are going into the land of milk and honey, symbolic of the Garden of Eden, incidentally. They're going into a new homeland. They will be a new nation born of the hand of God. They'll finally be recognized as a nation. Now, they have a history, of course, prior to this, and we'll talk about that in a bit. But they, at this time, are going to be a people with their own land, and in the Exodus, we're going to witness the birth of the nation. As they are on the way, God reminds them over and over and over that he requires obedience. He requires obedience to his commands. They shall not covenant with other peoples of the land. They shall not worship other gods of the people. They should not do according to their deeds. They should not intermarry. They are instead to, the Bible says, utterly overthrow them and break their sacred pillars into pieces and serve the Lord God. So the book of Exodus shows us many things uh, from beginning to end. Israel's rescue from Egypt, 40 years of wandering in the desert, the desert, that's a key term. And in between those events, we find people worshiping a golden calf in Moses' absence. We hear lots of grumbling and complaining. God makes a covenant with the people and agrees to be their God and they will be his people, to which they agree in between all this other stuff they're doing. We see the camp invaded by snakes. We see all kinds of things. It's no wonder they're in the desert 40 years. They can't get it through their head what they're supposed to be doing. 
So, but the, this whole time, God is faithful to his promise. This is a stubborn people, but God is faithful to his promise. His promise to who? His promise to Abraham, which goes back to his promise to Adam and Eve in Genesis 3.15. Promise, promise, promise from beginning to end. So for Mark's audience, the exodus of Israel from Egypt would be in view as they heard or read these words. It's the most significant event in the history of Israel. It just is. You can read about it on your own. I don't have the time this morning to prove to you that it is, but I promise you it is. It is the most significant event in the nation of Israel's history. Now you might be wondering, well, okay, now Mike, you're talking about Mark, you're talking about Exodus, and you're talking about Isaiah. Is there some kind of connection between Isaiah and the Exodus? I'm so glad you asked. Because there is. Most conservative scholars would agree that the second half of Isaiah, beginning in about 40, chapter 40, is a story, it's a plan of a new exodus. It's God's new exodus for his people. Because now they're in exile once again. They're in captivity. The temple has been destroyed. The presence of God has departed. In fact, Ezekiel tells us that the presence of God departed long before the destruction of the temple, before the exile. God just said, I've had enough. For years, we've been talking about being obedient. Having a heart that was dedicated to God is what he's really after. And they just continue to fail, continue to fail. So the second half of Isaiah pictures a new exodus. And as in the second half of Isaiah, the exile is coming near to an end, as it's written. And the final, the final chapters paint a picture of restoration, of redemption. And as we go from chapter 39 into 40, it's as if somebody flipped the light switch on. We go from darkness to light at the change of the chapter. We go from darkness of judgment into the light of salvation. God has remembered his people once again. He remembers the promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and he lays out a plan for this new exodus, a redemption of his people from the land of hostility and slavery. So now we go back to Mark. A messenger is sent. A messenger of sin. Who's the next person we see appear in Mark's opening? John the Baptist. That's, who, that's the messenger. Now, some of your Bibles may have margin notes, and they may say, oh, look at Malachi 3.1 here in reference to this. And they might point you to Isaiah, the passages we just finished looking at. So we see Mark, based on your Bible notes, Drawing on Isaiah, Malachi, and I've showed you how he's drawing on Exodus. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. That's from Malachi chapter 3. We have the messenger passage again in Malachi. We have it in the New Testament, and we have it in two other Old Testament books. Now, Malachi calls the messenger who? Elijah, 
Malachi doesn't say John the Baptist. He says Elijah. John himself denies that he's Elijah when people ask him. But somebody else says otherwise. And that somebody else is Jesus. He says in Matthew chapter 11, if you are willing to accept it, John himself is Elijah who was to come. Again, in chapter 17, the disciples ask him a question about, people say Elijah has to come first. And Jesus tells them, Elijah has come. Incidentally, they had just come down from the Mount of Transfiguration when that conversation was held. Who was at the Mount of Transfiguration? Elijah. So he didn't come like the Jews thought he would come. He didn't come like we thought he would come. But he did come. But Jesus is not interested in whether there's some future coming of Elijah. He is pointing the disciples and the readers back to John. John the Baptist is the messenger. And what about this John character? What about the way he's dressed? Has he come as some kind of religious leader? If he has, he certainly doesn't dress like the other religious leaders, does he? He does not have a fine Pharisee robe, a fine Pharisee hat. He doesn't have an entourage of other wealthy subjects, disciples, whatever, trailing him, following him. He has an entourage, but they're all dirt poor like him. He comes from the desert. He comes out of the desert with this camel hair coat. Remember the story in 2 Kings chapter 1? Bruce took us through it earlier this year in Sunday school. Remember when the king sends men out to find Beelzebub, the god of Ekron. Why does he send them? Because the king fell down and got hurt and was very ill and was bedridden. So he sends these men out to find Beelzebub to ask him, am I going to recover from this? And what does God do? He sends someone to intercept the men. And who he sends is the prophet Elijah. And when they come back to the king, whoa, the prophet Elijah said, you're not going to make it. How was he dressed? He wore a coat of hair and a leather belt. Both John and Elijah stood up to evil kings in their respective times. Both John and Elijah had to deal with an evil woman in the king's court. It ultimately cost John his life. There are numerous comparisons between John and Elijah that I could make, but we just can't go through the whole list today. Trust me, the book of the Kings Chronicles, you can go back and read that history, and you can see all the similarities to John the Baptist. Now, is there more significance to John the Baptist other than just fulfilling prophecy? Oh, look, here's another prophecy fulfilled. Check. No, there, there's something really important going on. And we're going to look at Malachi to understand what it is that's going on. Malachi is what? The final book of the Old Testament. He is the last prophet. He is a contemporary of Nehemiah. So he's writing 
roughly the same time period. Now, who is Nehemiah? Nehemiah is responsible for the rebuilding of the temple, right? So, we're going to take a look at that, because this message of Malachi can really be summed up in one sentence. The great king is coming, and he will come not only to judge his people, but also to bless and restore them. In many ways, his message is very similar to the rest of the prophets, a message of judgment and redemption. And although the Jews had been allowed to return from exile and rebuild the temple, things weren't going so well. It was rather discouraging. And the same old religious malaise shows up on the scene again. What are some of those things? Well, they were in the land, but it it wasn't their land. It was whose land? It was Cyrus's land. He just let them go back to it. But he captured them. And through the hand of God, they're going back and being allowed to rebuild the temple. So how does the temple building go? If you've read Ezra and Nehemiah, not too well. It doesn't have its former glory. And we're going to talk about why it doesn't have its former glory in a minute. But So this future all the other prophets have told Israel about, we're going to come out of exile. God is going to restore us. It's going to be like the old days. It hasn't happened. They're kind of out of exile, but they're still in exile. Well, the temple's rebuilt. Yeah, but it's not like the first temple. And once again, Malachi assures his readers, the day, the great day, the great and dreadful day of the Lord is coming. It'll burn like a furnace, and in that day the righteous will rejoice and you will trample down the wicked. Remember the law of my servant Moses. And to prepare the people, the Lord will send this prophet Elijah to call them back to their godly ways the ways of their forefathers. So Malachi writes to a nation that's been living in a rebuilt Jerusalem for nearly a century now, after the first exile's return, and he paints his picture of half-hearted religion. Oh, does that sound familiar? Does that sound modern? Maybe. He lays out the sins. If you read Malachi, he lays their sins out Full, in full view. This is what you are doing. And the issues that he, some of the issues that he deals with are strikingly familiar to us today. He deals with money. He deals with marriage, family, contributing to God's work. These are just a handful of things that Malachi writes about many, many years ago. Somebody could stand up here and preach about those very things any day today and be accurate. So why Malachi? What is this message from Malachi all about? It's the last call. It is the last call from God to repentance. God gave his people works to do. God's given us works to do. But the works are symbolic. 
There's no actual intrinsic value in the works other than the works often serve other people. It's the heart that God is after. And throughout all the prophets, he continues to emphasize that to the nation of Israel. You honor me with your lips. They, they fulfill the ritual ceremonies, but their hearts are not right. They don't have a truly circumcised heart. They don't love the Lord their God with all their heart. And they don't love others. They love themselves. And the wealthy take advantage of the poor and the outcast because they love themselves. So, all these years later, Malachi issues this call to repentance. Return your hearts to God so that once again his people would be their God. God would be with his people. And that's where I'm going. God did not return to the second temple. There's no record of it in the Old Testament. Read it. You don't have to take my word for it. Go read Ezra and Nehemiah. Read Malachi. There's no word that God returned to the temple. Is that significant? Yeah, because it means God's not with his people. I'm not their God and they are not my people. We've heard that in Hosea. Physical Israel today, spiritually, is still in exile. Now, they are a free nation, an independent nation, since 1948. But spiritual Israel, God's people, remain in exile. They have rejected the Messiah. They rejected John the Baptist just like the Messiah when he came. No, no, this is not, this is not what we expect to happen. This is not, mm -mm. we reject that. They looked past him. They looked past Jesus. They looked past John the Baptist. As you look at the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, as you come to the end of it, they're so close. God's people are so close to returning their hearts to God. And there's one glaring issue that's standing in the way, and that is the intermarriage when they cohorted with the other nations. They took women and husbands from the other nations. Now, Ezra and Nehemiah addressed these issues. It's a big deal. And they seem to take steps near the end of the writings to correct that, but that's where we're left. We don't, we don't see a correction, and we're left wondering, well, <laughs> did they or didn't they? I suspect they didn't, because we don't have any word of God returning in his glory to the people of Israel. That's what John the Baptist is here for. It's that last final call, people. This is the last chance. He's coming with a baptism of repentance. It's what he's doing in Mark's gospel. In verse 9, Jesus shows up. Where's John baptizing? the Jordan River. With Jesus on the scene now, it's going to help this, this theme that I'm talking about come into view. Verse 9 says, Jesus was baptized by John in the Jordan River, and then in verse 10, Jesus comes out of the water, and he saw the heavens being torn open, and a dove descending on him. 
with a loud voice from heaven declaring, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. Now what just happened there? Why is it so significant for Mark's audience? Remember we already talked about the opening verse and the intent of Mark to take his reader back to where? Back to the Exodus, back to the birth of a nation. This baptism is a picture of that. Jesus is the true and new Israel. According to Hosea 11, my son Israel, who I've called out of Egypt. He's not talking about a nation anymore. He's talking about Christ. And what Mark is describing is the new exodus that Isaiah spoke of. And that theme is going to continue throughout Mark's gospel. <clears throat> the new exodus being fulfilled in Christ. His baptism is a picture of Israel's baptism in the Red Sea. That's what the apostles Peter and Paul referred to the Red Sea crossing as. It was Israel's baptism. And here we see Jesus, the true Israel, being baptized. But it's still bigger than that yet. Like Israel's exodus, it's a picture of a new creation. Right there on the banks of the Jordan River, Christ coming out of the water. They don't see it yet. Nobody sees it yet. But the picture of the new creation is in its beginning stages. It's a picture of God triumphing over chaos, evil, death, and the serpent. We're going to see some more about the serpent. But this is part of this theme, this God's triumph, this new creation that runs from the beginning of Scripture to the end. Within the theme of Exodus lies a theme of creation. Creation and recreation are acts by which God brings humanity back into order, or into order. Let's go back to Genesis. And what do we have in Genesis 1? The earth was what? It was void. And the deep covered the face, and the Spirit hovered over the waters. And God creates out of the waters. He creates order. He overcomes chaos. And in the order, he creates man. And he creates all that we know of creation. So that's in Genesis 1. And then we go to Genesis 6, and what happens? Well, things haven't gone too well, have they? And sin is like wildfire across the land. And God says, I've had enough of this. But there's this guy, this Noah character. Noah's a righteous man, so God tells Noah, you're going to build this ark, and you're going to put your family in it, and you're going to collect all these creatures that I tell you to, and you're going in this ark because it's going to rain. And brother, it's going to rain. Not like the rain, we, we think it's raining, don't we? This is a lot of rain. And we like to think that, oh, it rained for 40 days and 40 nights. Well, go back and read the story. It's almost a year from the time they go into the ark till the time they come out. Now, it's not raining all that time, but if it rains for just 40 days, it's going to take a while for that water to go away. So, almost a year later, Noah and his family are finally free from the ark. We let the, creation, the creatures go. 
And what does God do? He blesses Noah. He makes a covenant with Noah and creation. The rainbow is the sign of the covenant. And what does God say? Never again will I destroy all flesh with the flood of water. And the blessing that God give Noah and his sons, remarkably similar to the blessing that he gave Adam and Eve in the garden. Decreation, recreation. That's, the the- that's what I want you to be tucking away in the back of your head. Decreation, recreation. Through the waters. Then we find God calls Abraham. And he makes a covenant with Abraham. And in order to accept that call, Abraham has to do what? He has to leave his family. He has to give up everything he owns and trust God. And he does it. So Abraham moves to a new creation, towards a new life. And the promise goes to the patriarchs, Isaac, Jacob. And then there's this fellow named Joseph who ends up in a pit. Because his brothers put him there. But in their evil and God's providence, Joseph ends up a very important person in Egypt. And because of Joseph's very important position, the family of Israel can come to Egypt because there's a famine in the land and people are starving to death. But there's not a famine in Egypt because Joseph took care of business. He had food stored up for the entire nation of Egypt. Of Egypt. So the Israelite family, this, these um, brothers, grow into a pretty large population. A new pharaoh comes along and says, I don't like this. These people are too large and too powerful, and he puts them in slavery. They're no longer free in Egypt. They become slaves of the pharaoh, and they stay slaves a lot. Their numbers are not growing. They're not increasing. Where's the land God promised us? This mud hole turning mud and straw into bricks? Something that, I, that, that is important to see. Scholars picture Egypt as symbolic, theologically. Egypt represents Sheol. Egypt represents death. And that's where God's people are, once again, as if they're on a trash pile to rot. They're in exile again. They're being decreated. And eventually God hears their cry, and Moses appears on the scene. Now, Moses is not really excited to be there. He's afraid to go to the Hebrews because of something he did a few years before. He's afraid to go to Pharaoh. He's supposed to go to Pharaoh and say, hey, uh, God said, let us go. Let us go. God said. We'd probably be nervous about that, too. So... 
Moses shows up, or he's, he's having this conversation with God, and he, he's, not, he's not sure this is what he wants to do. He's got his staff with him. God says, throw your staff down on the ground. Moses throws it down, and it turns into a serpent. <laughs> Moses is a little bit afraid of that. God tells him, pick it up. Grab it by the tail and pick it up. And when he does, it does what? It turns back into a staff. Now let's talk about Pharaoh for a second. What does Pharaoh's crown have on it? The cobra. The cobra is a symbol of the Pharaoh. So he's got this crown with this cobra sticking out of it. So when we think of a serpent, we think of a land creature, right? I mean, typically, other than, you know, cottonmouth going across the pond or something. But the Hebrews and the biblical writers have a little bit more, a broader idea of the serpent in mind than we do. You've heard of the dragons in the Bible. You've heard of the great sea beast in the Bible. It's a serpent. It's the serpent. It's a land and water creature, a land and sea creature. The serpent. And we know the serpent is representative of someone, right? It's a type and shadow, for sure, of Satan. So, what God is showing Moses with the staff turning into a serpent is, when you put your hand to the serpent, it will yield. Because I'm God. Pharaoh is not God. I am. And you're my messenger. I'm sending you to prepare the way. So, in one of the confrontations that Aaron and Moses have with Pharaoh, Moses says, oh, remember the serpent thing when I threw that stick down? and I'm going to try that one out. So he throws the, sta the staff down, and it turns into a serpent, sure enough. Pharaoh kind of chuckles at that and brings his magicians out, three of them, and they repeat that trick. They throw their staffs down, and we have three serpents. What does Moses' staff, Moses' serpent do? It devours Pharaoh's serpents. That's a picture for Moses, again, from God. I'm with you. Pharaoh will yield to me. It's a picture to Pharaoh. This man is God's messenger, and you will yield, ultimately. Pharaoh endured ten plagues before he finally yielded. Ten plagues on the land before he let the Hebrews go free. But he does change his mind. He lets them go. And the people are stopped at the edge of the Red Sea. And Pharaoh has changed his mind. I shouldn't have let them go. I'm going to get them. So here they are, up against the banks of the Red Sea, and Pharaoh's army in hot pursuit on that side. There's nowhere to go. The situation seems hopeless until what happens? God sends a wind, but not just any wind. The Hebrew word is ruach, the Spirit. The Spirit of God comes and parts the Red Sea, and the nation of Israel goes through on dry ground. 
And Pharaoh's army, the serpent, the sea dragon, is in hot pursuit. And he takes, he leads his army into the walls of the sea. Imagine Pharaoh in his chariot with his cobra hat on. And God withdraws Ruach, the spirit. And the seas collapse on Pharaoh and his army. The sea dragon is destroyed in the sea by God's hand. God is sovereign over chaos represented by the sea. He's sovereign over death. He's sovereign over evil. So, what stands on the other side of the sea when it comes back together? A brand new nation. Israel. A brand new kingdom on the other side. Now, they are a people that are going to wander in the desert for 40 years. (laughs) Because of their stubbornness, eventually they do enter the promised land and they enjoy God's favor and they enjoy his presence in the temple among them. It's the single most important event in all of Israel's history. And Mark is drawing that in in his gospel. He's reminding the people of what God has done through baptism. So, by now, you surely, okay, Mike, you've made your point. There is a theme uh, that God uses the waters, and there's a decreation, and there's a recreation theme uh, present throughout Scripture. A couple of things real quick about the sea. In the final consummation of God's kingdom, when it comes, we have to turn to the book of Revelation to see that. In Revelation chapter 4, John gives us a... John tells us he's given a glimpse into heaven. He's kind of pulled up into heaven by the Spirit. And he sees a throne with one seated on it. Around the throne is a rainbow. In front of the throne, before the throne, was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. So we don't know if it's a sea or not. John describes it as a sea of glass. But the important thing is that it's calm. Because it's at the feet of the sovereign one. It's under his control. I hope you took notice of the rainbow. Now jump ahead to Revelation 20. John sees an angel coming down from heaven, holding a key to the bottomless pit in a great chain. And the angel seizes the dragon. The ancient serpent of the sea who is the devil. These are John's words. These aren't Mike's. The angel binds the beast and throws him into a pit. And now I'll jump ahead a couple more scenes in Revelation 20. And John witnesses the great judgment. And John ties the sea together with death and Hades as they give up the dead. Then, death and Hades, now remember the sea has been tied to death and Hades, are thrown into the lake of fire. As we begin to wrap this up, one more Old Testament event. We go back to the last plague, just before 
Israel begins its exodus. In Exodus 12, God tells Moses that what is about to happen signifies a new beginning. Listen to God's words. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. It is a day that a free nation was born. It was Independence Day for Israel. Now this is happening just before the tenth plague. On the day that that Moses is going to go to Pharaoh with this. And Pharaoh's going to, because God hardens his heart, Pharaoh says, no. He rejects it. What is the tenth plague? Do we remember? Yeah, we remember. It involved the death of all the firstborn in the land. With none to be spared, even the slave girl, the Bible says. Except for Israel, except for God's people. For those who followed instructions. And the instructions were to take a branch, a hyssop branch, and dip it in the blood of a sacrificial lamb. Paint the doorpost. And when the Spirit of God came through that night, the doorpost with the blood of the lamb on it, the firstborn were spared. All the other homes, and this didn't just include people, the firstborn was taken by God. So Egypt, the land, of, the land that symbolized death, was now surrounded with death. It was flooded with death. And it was too much death, and Pharaoh couldn't take it. So that's when he decides to let people go. That's when he decides Israel can leave and begin their exodus. That's what we're seeing this morning in Mark's gospel. I know it seems like an awful lot, but that is what Mark wants us to see as he begins to tell this story. You've got to understand the Exodus people before I tell you the rest of the story. It's got to be at the forefront of your mind. The baptism that John is conducting, when Jesus goes down into the water, or is sprinkled with the water, it doesn't doesn't tell us, it just says he's in the water. Regardless, it's a picture of death in the waters of chaos. It's a picture of Christ's descent into hell on behalf of sinners. It's a picture of the coming crucifixion that he will face. And just like Israel's exodus began with the blood of a lamb, our deliverance began with the blood of a sacrificial lamb. Our exodus was in the making that day on the Jordan River when Jesus came out of the waters. It's a picture of Jesus defeating death. The waters of chaos. He's defeating the serpent. As I told you before, physical Israel remains in exile. You and I as believers of Christ, those who've been grafted into spiritual Israel, as Paul tells us, we are sojourners. We are in the wilderness. Fear not, Christ has defeated sin and death. Christ has defeated Satan in the wilderness. There's going to be another flood. 
And I know you're sitting there thinking, Mike, God said there's not going to be another flood. Don't stand up there and say that. What God said is there won't be another flood of water. But there's another flood coming. And it is a flood of judgment and redemption. It will be a decreation of this planet and a new creation of this planet. And in that flood is coming a flood of God's glory. God's presence with his people. Just as Peter and Malachi both wrote, this flood comes as a refining fire to destroy and redeem. Remember I told you about the second exodus in Isaiah. Let's go to the beginning of that second exodus in Isaiah 43. For those of you who have watched The Chosen, this verse is probably still fresh in your mind. But now says the Lord, he who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not. For I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, through the rivers, they will not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned. The flame shall not consume you. And in verse 4, he says, because you are precious in my eyes and honored, and I love you. I gave Egypt as a ransom for you. This message was told to people in Isaiah's day, but the message is for you and I. It's for us. We are the new Israel. The branches grafted in to the true Israel. A couple more things from Revelation and I'm going to stop. Hear the words from John in the final chapter of Revelation. And as you listen, listen for the sound of the sea. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain evermore. For the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. He said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I give from the spring of water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. Brothers and sisters, followers of Christ, the Messiah, the true Israel, fear not, for he has redeemed you. He has called you by name, because you are precious to him. Amen.